Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new feature we're calling the Motorsport Commentary Behind the Scenes March 2017. Much like a director's commentary on a DVD, we will run through every new issue of Motorsport and give you a little insight into what went into making it. We'll take you through the photography tricks, sourcing stories, design challenges and much more. Now, for those regular podcast listeners, you will recognise a few sounds. We're in the boardroom, so there are some squeaky chairs, but what you hear is literally what you get. We're just sat around the table and chatting as we usually do. Today, I'm joined by Features Editor Simon Aaron, Art Editor Damon Cockman, Deputy Editor Joe Dunn, Editor-at-Large Gordon Crookshank, and the Editor himself, Nick Trott. Like a royal flush, that, isn't it? Right, let's get started and straight into it. Uh, Damon, let's start at the front on the cover of the March edition, and there is a beautiful Alfa Romeo Tipo V P3. Um, but all is not as it seems, is it? How very dare you. Yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah it's, it's pretty much almost completely different to how it was in the, in the real life. Um, we, we've, as with most cover uh, pictures, we have to retouch quite a lot of images to make the images to make them beautiful and to make them exciting and chat and uh, striking. So because the the front cover is always the advert for the, for the magazine. It's always the thing that makes uh, you buy buy the magazine, makes you want to pick it up. So you have to make it striking and as visually exciting as you can. And that's not always the case at Blyton because uh, it's uh, quite a uh, quite a flat, featureless place with uh, not much going on. So. What we had to do with this particular cover is take the original with Andrew driving that amazing Alpha. First thing you'll probably notice is he's sitting a little bit lower in the car than he would be normally. So Andrew's a Andrew's a tall fella. He's about six. What is he? Six four. Six four. Six, six, four, six, four, six, four, six five. Yeah. Yeah. Tall fella. He so he sticks out quite a lot. So he's so many arrows. He kind of um, he kind of he kind of was sticking out a little bit too far. So we had to drop him down in the cockpit a little. Um, and then the, obviously that allowed us to kind of make the most of the, the cover lines at the top. Um, and then the, obviously you wanted a big dramatic sky, so with the cover lines of Dawn of the Grand Prix car, you want that kind of dawn, uh, dawn of time kind of uh, feeling going on. So we've got, we've got a, a, a cover that's been made of probably about three or four different images. Uh, this, the, the sort of sky was from, oh, I can't remember now, but a few years ago we, we did a lovely photo shoot with a with that sky and then but we used that use that sky and then tinged it with a little brown and a little bit of uh, just to warm it up a little bit um, and then sort of boosted the greens boosted the reds and sort of got got the got it all working pretty beautifully um, okay so to give people a bit of insight how many cover images do you look at on average for, for a new cover well, um, every issue of motorsport because it's not just one is it no no there's uh, there's quite a few um, we have a we have a process where we um, choose what we think are going to be the best images for the cover we put those aside um, for uh, for a rainy day and then we kind of do the feature then that kind of allows us to really um, ex expand on what we do on the cover um, uh, so over the course of the month it kind of percolates it kind of has a time on the wall we sort of print them out they go up on the wall we kind of take them down again and we change our mind, and then a new story, a whole new story appears, and we can then we completely switch around. But this one was uh, from day one. This was always going to be on the cover because uh, it was it's such an amazing car, such a striking uh, image, and uh, such an important car. So uh, it was kind of always going to be, even with all the stuff going on with Bernie. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll, add, I'll add to that as well. The, the, um, I mean, going forward, we're going we're to be looking much more at you know, commissioning our own photography for, for cover images because um, it, it's great having a raft of images to choose from, but we're, we're still kind of being reactive then. And I think obviously what we're going to try and do is, is just to be on top of the, the cover format yeah. way before we've even started to um, put anything on the page. Um, the good thing that we had here from the photographer, Stuart Collins, well, Stuart, yeah, Stuart, Stuart's a, a great photographer, um, and this image leapt out straight away because it does reflect the fact that we've driven this car, and not many people have um, driven this car, um, not many people with the ability have driven this car, so um, that's why that's why it's moving, you know, it's, I know this sounds a very simple thing, but, but we use a moving shot because we drove the car. We had a static option, yeah. um, and the, the picture was really nice, it was very crisp, it showed all the details and everything. But it didn't really have the drama, did it? It was, yeah. just wasn't quite there. And the other, the other thing we looked at, there was a slightly higher angle. So with the Stuart took a shot, probably more level with the alpha batch. So if you're looking at the, the issue now, um, imagine if your point of view was probably a couple of foot higher than that. And that was quite nice because it showed the two um, Ferrari uh, emblems, yeah. the shields on the side. And of yeah. course, if you have Ferrari shields and there's a red car and it's your cover and it's and it's in your face, then you know, I'm obviously thinking, well, there's, there's more sale opportunity with that. People are going to be drawn to that. So we had this kind of, we had this kind of debate, didn't we? Because yeah. the lower angle was way more dramatic. The higher angle showed the shields, yeah. you know. <laughs> so we were kind of, um, what was it, an arm wrestle in the end? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I won, I think. I think. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you're bigger than I think. That's um, right. no. <laughs> I think ultimately, yeah, I have to say, I mean, I, for me, it's a real buzz to see that. It's my, my, my first cover. Ultimately, though, it was you guys. This this feature had been commissioned by you guys before I started, and the the, the shoe had been completed before I started. And I, it was nice to come along and to say, okay, well, let's really get an impactful first cover. Um, but I'm really really pleased with it. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's a, yeah. I think it's a yeah. good one. Yeah. Um, so your first issue and your first editorial, and I think we're used to writing slightly shorter editorials, but being motorsport, <clears throat> we we quadruple the usual length. <laughs> um, and then to give you all those rest to write about. So, obviously, as you mentioned just there, you came in a, a bit late for this issue, but your first editorial, you went off to WRC rounds. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a bit about your editorial and, and why you're talking about the things you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm nuts about all forms of, of motorsport. I think, you know, like the rest of us, Formula One kind of dominates our thinking. But, um, you know, as a kid growing up, I, I was lucky my dad you know, took me to pretty much everything, really. So um, I love rallying, I love, I love Formula One. Rallying's obviously uh, very topical um, at, at the moment. Rallying um, is entering a new era as well as Formula One is. The cars are much faster, the cars are faster because the uh, promoters want more spectacle in the sport, and we know this is what's gonna happen in Formula One in, in two months or so. So I, so I thought, okay, I've gotta to go to the Monty, I need to see these cars in action, and, and for the significance of, what, what's it going to mean to the person who's on the rally stage or the person who's reading this in motorsport that the cars are any quicker? Is it actually going to make any difference at all? No. Um, Drew is out for me, to be honest. Um, it, was, it was mega to go to, to the Monty and see the cars in action, but um, I don't necessarily think they were, they were more spectacular. Um, well, they, they were when it, the tarmac was dry and they were on the right tyres, and then it was quite something. They, they were really nuts, kind of like those European hill climb 
events you see where the <laughs> everything's <laughs> screaming up the hill, then the cars looked amazing. But of course, when the grip was limited and the surface was slippery, um, there was there was drama. They were sliding, but we're not talking Mark II Escort levels of drama. You know? we're, we're in danger um, here of getting Simon Aaron onto Mark II Escort. <laughs> 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 well, Tommy Reckonen said, I, I interviewed Tommy, and he said the cars are set up to um, deliver the, the performance at a slight understeer moment. You know, and I must admit, my heart sank when I heard that. Oh, it should be a rule. Should it be a rule in WRC that the cars have to deliver their optimum performance when they're at half, uh, a half a turn? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that should be the rule. So, should, um, should the rules also mean that they should all be rear wheel drive as well and actually be part of the rest of the car? That sounds you heard as a can of worms being, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> being opened. But to, to to answer your question, uh, yeah, I had to go to the Monty. I had to see this, and likewise, you know, as. As we had a planning meeting, if you're listening to this, we had a planning meeting the other day and we all sat around and we were thinking, should we go? Should we all go to Barcelona to see these cars for the first time? And I guess that's how I felt before the Monty had to go. Um, and uh, therefore it was nice to be able to write about it because Mark Hughes um, writes far more eloquently about Formula 1 than I do. So I thought I'd dive into rallying. So, sorry, 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 sorry. I just thought that there's an additional rule that the car should be off the, about six foot off the ground at all times. <laughs> I think it's uh, that's as hot, well that's as hot racing, isn't it? More or less, yes. But I think, I think, you know, <laughs> that that rear wheel drive, Mark, yeah, it all works. Yeah, great. Well, let's let's move on to the month in pictures. Um, Damon, I'm going to come to you first again because this is um, sort of shapes and colours. This one, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, there's, I, there's a pot, obviously, that you kind of putting pictures in throughout the month, um, but this is done quite late in the day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what we try and do is keep it um, as topical as we can because uh, obviously the, uh, the the magazine goes in pretty much the middle of the month, uh, somewhere around there. Uh, we have to try and be uh, as relevant as we can. So uh, depending on when events are happening and depending on their importance, of course. I mean, this particular one. We've got an amazing picture of Dakar with Pet Hansel um, with a helicopter flying after him uh, as our main opening shot. So uh, that was obviously the main main story at this time of the year. Um, we're, we're, it, we actually find it trickier to find the images this time of the year just because of the nature of uh, the events. They're, they tend to be rallies or they tend to be sort of off-season things. Uh, as the months sort of tick by, it gets easier and easier through the, through the summer. And then it gets harder again at the end of the year. But um, there's, there's, there's always something going on. So, I mean, you'd probably disagree with the I have been known to attend the old sort of sporting trial and club rallying things in December. On Christmas Day, yeah. Bo- <laughs> Boxing, Bo- Boxing Day Mallory is an absolute staple yeah. for me, except when you missed like, your season pass and I went to Wimbledon Bankers instead and the one just gone. But no, I mean, it is, I mean, I'm quite often involved in discussions with Damon when we're looking at what we can put in month in pictures because he's desperate to find something and I usually know something which is completely immaterial and irrelevant to, <laughs> to, the, to the core audience. But, but, but it is actually happening, uh, which it does have in its, in its strength. But it's, I mean, yeah, it is, it is a tricky one at this time of year. I mean, you've got Australian V8s and things which are going on, but, but I think, to be honest, it's actually part of the fun is trying to find something interesting somewhere in the world at this time of the year. Yeah. Gordon, um, but talking about things happening on Christmas Day, am I, am I right in thinking that Jenks used to test F or tested an F1 car? A Lotus on Christmas Day? He wants to go to Lotus on Christmas Day and drove it round the roads, reckoning there would be fewer police cars out and fewer <laughs> other cars he'd get into trouble with. And he got away with it. He drove it all day. And uh, I think it only broke down at the end when he went uh, back to wherever it was he collected it from. Is this in the archive? 
It's in the Arkham AD. So there you go, there's a lesson plug. There we go. Right, yeah. That's all available at mentalstormagazine.com.com.com. And also, should we do that again? Yeah, as long as it's on someone else's license, I'm all for it. You put your hand up. I'll do it, absolutely. I might have to close some roads, but I'm a registered racing car. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. As a, as a series. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we break the law. It's, okay, so... You better so not tell the readers beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> that's Definitely don't on the A14 at 6 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. <laughs> um, okay, so the, the Bernie story. Um, Joe, it's come to you first, actually, because as part of this story, um, we wanted to get as many people's voices on, on Bernie as possible, but I think you've had a few problems actually getting anyone to say anything bad about him. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, it was tricky um, finding you. Just going back one step, it was it was difficult in terms of the timing because I think Bernie. We all knew that obviously the Liberty takeover was taking place. And in fact, I think it had taken place the week before our press week, um, and we knew that Bernie's position was going to change. So we knew we were going to cover it, and we were going to be doing some uh, content around you know the end of, of end of Bernie's reign. But it, it sort of jumped up on the Monday of press week, where Bernie announced, I think, to a German magazine that he'd been deposed, which suddenly made the story much more live, and it really was the end of an era. Um, so we had to think of, it become a lot more definite than it was the, the week before. We had to find some people to re- reflect on what his reign at the top meant, and um, despite lots of mutterings, and you know, it being kind of uh, a lot of people saying uh, uh, previously that Bernie was a difficult man to deal with, and a lot of people held him responsible for a lot that was wrong with Formula One, actually getting them on the record to say, anything negative at all was, was very, very difficult. Um, I think probably a testament to sort of the loyalty people showed to Bernie. Despite everything, a lot of people, uh, certainly that I spoke to, and the voices that we have in the, in the magazine, uh, being Derek Warwick and um, uh, Damon Hill, um, were actually pretty complimentary about him and said that he was a very uh, uh, a force for good in the final reckoning. Um, well, there was one contributor who declined to comment, uh, Ron Toranak, who... Uh, Cause Bernie took over from when he bought Brabham and they worked together for a short while and Ron's comment was I don't think I better say anything this is where we stop the tape and you can tell us exactly what he I've written it down it's in a brown paper envelope he was actually we, we got in touch with him because he wrote into us didn't he saying that he was fit as a fiddle still a couple yes, of months ago uh, a couple of months um, uh, when we'd reported that he hadn't made an appearance at Goodwood because Goodwood said it was through ill health and he wrote to us from Australia saying um, uh, despite what Goodwood say I'm actually in very fine health and go to the gym three times a week um, and he's 92. Is he wild? I was just about to say, we, have we done a podcast? Should we do a podcast? No, no, I think that's absolutely one for this. Should we fly to Australia? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's okay. yeah. Um, There's an Australian Grand Prix coming up, actually. Yeah. So, moving on to the sort of Mark Hughes F1 section, he's, he's done a piece on the return of Alfa Romeo. Um, this, for me, is, you know, always started makes me think of Al- uh, Audi going to Formula 1, you know, that story that kind of cropped up every year. Alpha returning to Formula 1 is something that's reared its head a few times. So there's obviously a little bit of truth in it, otherwise Mark wouldn't be writing about it. But what are your thoughts? Um, it's, it's one of these romantic stories that um, crops up from time to time. But it's, I mean, Alpha has this fantastic sporting pedigree, but... It won the first two Formula One, the first two World Championships of Drivers in 1950-51 with cars that were kind of pre-war leftovers, you know, polished up a bit and um, best than anything else around the time. 
since the 1951 Spanish Grand Prix, they haven't won a single Formula One race. It's been rubbish. Um, <laughs> I mean, they came, yeah, they supplied engines in the 70s, had a few, few wins here and there, and their own team in the mid 80s, which again was, didn't really achieve a great deal. I mean, there's this company with a fantastic sporting legacy. I'd love to see them back, the name back in Formula One if they were the level they were in the early 50s. When, when was the last time that Alpha were great then? Was it early 50s? Nice. I mean, <laughs> it was. I mean, as, as, as an, I mean, obviously, well, it's 20... thing on the road car side as well, actually. Well, hang on. I'm going to stay wrong. I had only 1992 Fiat. Oh, you're going to go anyway. You tried to make out the Orphea fan as the Alfa Romeo. Uh, sorry, just my. There is that. They built fantastic engines in the 70s, but they, they were fantastic engines that got you within a couple of laps of the chequered flag and then broke quite often. Um, you know, they've, they've not had any major success at all uh, as a works team since the Olympics. I spoke to Mark just before um, uh, just just before he delivered some copy, and, and we're, we're interested in the Alpha story because you know Marchioni had said maybe there's a place for an Alpha Romeo team in Formula One, and there was obviously an ulterior motive for it. And um, but then it, in the office we started to discuss the kind of the role of a B team and what what, what do the new rules mean for B teams this year uh, or uh, non factory teams. Um, and, it, and it's clear that whenever there's any disruption, rule disruption in the sport, that there could be a strange, unusual result thrown up. And, um, or even further down the line, new teams come along and take advantage of a, of a rule change. But, um, so we asked Mark to go into the concept of B teams, what they are, what they were. Um, and I think this year as well, I'm prepared to put some money on, on one of the B teams or non-factory teams winning a race or three this year, actually, because okay. the rules have been yeah, thrown yeah, up. Yeah, you want it, I'll put 10 quid on Force India. Oh, hang on, who's driving Force India this year? It's no one who's going to win a race. Perez and Ocon. Perez and Ocon. Perez could sneak a win. He could, and Ocon's better. Okay, I'm going to take that bet then. 10 quid. Right. Force India to win. It is literally on record. Excellent. Okay, let's. Let's keep moving um, onto the Pat Simmons piece that, that Mark did, and in it, Pat talks about sort of three of the biggest names over the last few decades in Formula One: Senna, Schumacher, and Alonso. And um, Pat is in a very unique position, isn't he? Because he, he's worked with these three massive names. There, there are others who have worked with greats in our sport, um, obviously Ross Vaughan, but I don't think anyone that springs to mind who's worked so directly with three such big names in recent times. Tom, you're probably me on this. Um, I'm just having a think, actually. I mean, uh, Neil Oakley, who was a subject of a lunch with us, I mean, he engineered both Prost and Senna mm-hmm. to, to world titles and has worked with a great many. I mean, he's been at McLaren working less directly because engineers, well, sorry, uh, direct technical directors don't work as directly mm-hmm. as race engineers used to with the drivers. But he's, he's worked with Alonso, he's worked with Hamilton um, in a slightly less direct way, plus Senna and Prost. So, I mean, yeah, there are, there are others who's. CV is pretty impressive. Maybe yeah. Gordon Murray. I mean, Gordon Murray's worse. Yeah. Nicky Lauda, Nelson Piquet, Senna Prost. Yeah. I think one of the, the great things about Pat, part of the reason why we have him on so many podcasts, is he's very eloquent mm. an engineer. I mean, I don't mean to be rude about engineers, but because mm. they're so much more intelligent than I am, mm. actually, when they speak normally, I can't understand what they're, what they're saying. But Pat puts things into English that I can understand, which is saying something. Um, and is very eloquent with it. So yeah, it's called Murray, actually, called yeah. Murray, saying, but that's why I think this piece is so lovely, is because obviously Mark has a great turn of phrase, but it's, you know, Pat's quotes are just very insightful. <clears throat> when, I was, when I was covering Formula One full-time, it was always 
very striking. You'd have the Thursday press briefing with the drivers, all of whom were scared of their own shadow, wouldn't say anything, even remotely controversial. Then on the Friday, you'd get the engineers. And if you had a bunch, you had Ross, you had Pat, you, you, know, you had Flavio Briatore in there sometimes, Christian Horner, you, you and Martin Whitmarsh. You got far more interesting content from the engineers. Um, they, they, were, they were genuinely riveting to listen to. Yeah. Um, Joe, I think it was, am I right in saying there's actually quite a lot cut from this story? Yeah, there was. I mean, the, uh, Mark had a fantastic chat with, uh, with Pat and... Um, when he reported back on what the air, on how much ground they'd covered, uh, it struck us that there was there was you know almost too much to fill just a single feature. So um, we've actually held some stuff back, and um, I think we're going to run yeah. something uh, uh, in in April, which is um, just as good, if not more, sort of revelatory. I think. Um, yeah, more of that. I mean, I, I still feel in many respects that I'm I'm a, I'm a reader of motorsport, so I, I kind of. The way I see see Mark, the way I analyse Mark, is that he's so brilliant at pulling information, relevant information out of people, and, and what he delivered after this story was was so much that we just we just couldn't cover it for one issue. But then it started to crystallise into another feature, and it was clear we couldn't do that feature justice unless we ran it in a in a subsequent issue. Um, so we are taking that um, content and we are turning into it into a bigger feature. And actually, it's being discussed at the moment as potentially our next cover. Um, so those discussions are underway. Damon needs to find an image that reflects yeah. this, this amazing story that Mark has extracted from Pat. And um, at the moment, I think we're probably 95% certain that we're going to go with that as yeah. the concept. So, so keep your... Yeah. I know this issue's only just gone in sale if you're <laughs> listening to this in... What's the date Yeah, But in... A, in Four to five weeks, so there'll be another issue which will be even better. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a definite watch this space uh, thing. Yeah. It yeah. really is a really is a good story. But, but don't don't buy this issue, guys. Okay, so don't 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 what you do run, it's what you don't. And it's it's about how you focus a story. And sometimes, especially with someone like Mark, as Nick was saying, you get so much great stuff that you need to focus it on one particular element of the story. Uh, and that, that can mean holding holding something back. Um, and, and that's the exercise which we've done with, with, with this piece this month. Damon, at the Hall of Fame pages, we announced uh, an exciting little development um, at the Hall of Fame, and that's that artist Tim Maisel is going to be painting a... a, a, a uh, painting for painting, us. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's very exciting. Um, Tim's uh, a guy that we've uh, we've loved. Uh, we, when we'd all have uh, a Tim Nazel original on our wall at home, I'm sure, of a heart, in a heartbeat. Um, his, uh, his work's been around for a few years and he's a hard and fast motorsport enthusiast. He's, uh, he, whenever I've spoken to him, he's always mentioned his love of motorsport and his uh, uh, love of the, of the magazine. So uh, it was a natural choice, really. Um, we've got, uh, we've actually got a, um, a Tim Lazell original on our office wall. I'm sitting here looking sure, up, uh, looking up, looking up and yeah. down, which probably doesn't translate to an uh, Moss and James, James but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Moss and James uh, 55 uh, races on our wall as we as we as we speak. But uh, but yeah, he's um, Tim's going to be creating something uh, original and one-off 
for uh, our Hall of Fame event, um, and it will be unveiled on the uh, on the evening of the event. So we're looking forward very much to seeing that come together. Uh, Nick and myself have been uh, mulling over old uh, pictures of the event that we're talking about, which I don't agree. No, we'll, we'll keep it close to our chest. Yes. We, we have a particular uh, theme um, that we've been talking to Tim about, and it is really special. Mm. Um, so special that I think there's probably going to be... Um, I just think there's going to be something else we can do with the painting after it's delivered. Um, hopefully there's a way we can offer it to um, motorsport readers in some way, but we'll, we'll work that out. But it is a topic that is blow your socks off, isn't it? Yeah, it? it's absolutely amazing. And, uh, well, he's done some sketches already, which all look amazing already. Uh, so, yeah, we've, uh, we, we can't wait. Um, right, okay, so we now actually move into the section of, of um, columnists, old and new. Um, a new one is Dario Franchitti. Uh, certainly someone who's, who's achieved a lot on track. Uh, Nick, how did this column come about? You, you've known him for many a year now. Yeah, I, I have. And um, in, in, my, in my previous life as, as editor of Evo, um, Dario was one, of, was one of the columnists, still is, I, I believe. Um, so I've known Dario for, for a fair while. He's, um, he's, he's unique in the world of racing drivers because he has... Um, a genuine passion and an encyclopedic knowledge of um, of past of of historical of racing, and he's and he's also not afraid to 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 name heroes and name events and name uh, situations that in, inspire him. Um, I was talking to Gordon earlier on today actually that we don't hear so much of that from from racing drivers anymore. Um, so Dario's got this brilliant way of communicating the then and the now. Um, and of course, you can't pick holes in it because Dario was quite a good racing driver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think he won, he won a couple of things. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, not races. Quite, quite a good yeah. racing driver. <laughs> yeah, and um, and of course, he, he's um, he lives, breathes it, and he was forced into retirement, as as many people know. Um, and I think that he's he's sort of moved into being a retired racing driver. Um, has enabled his sort of love of the past um, to kind of flourish, and he's becoming more eloquent and more erudite and more of a um, of a scholar of historical motorsport. And you know, and this is this is a guy who's you know in his forties. You know, he's he's not he's not somebody who's you know coming towards the end of their you know their time. So he's he's he's, he's a cool guy. If he wasn't a a racing driver, he probably would have been a motorsport writer, wouldn't he? Or he would have been on the motorsport editorial team, knowing his kind of knowledge and passion for the sport. Well, I think there's uh, a lot in that, because when I did this over the phone with him, and um, there were quite a few complications about the timing, when I first met Oliver, he was in the pit lane at Daytona, about to go out on the track as the Grand Marshal. <laughs> so he did say, However, I interrupted his breakfast the next day, and um, he said to me, that he had an idea for the structure of it, which was this idea, which those of you who already read it will see, of going through the mental run-through, all the way through, and then at the end saying, that's only the run-through, now we're about to do it for real. So he thought about the structure of it, and that is unusual, there are articulate drivers, but I've not come across somebody who had thought about how it would read on the page. Mm. And in fact, he spoke so well that I had to do very little fiddling and reordering with it. I had mugged up on lots of quotes and other comments about indie practice just in case there were gaps or something to lead on, lead him with, but uh, I didn't need to. He talked and I wrote it down and uh, he planned it, so it's really his story. Is this going to be a regular 
think we're going to get more of Dario? I'd like to. I'd, I'd, I'd certainly like to. And he, um, you know, he, he's he's expressed uh, you know an interest in, in helping out more. Of course, he's the busiest man in the world. He, he's got amazing. Uh, he's always he's always travelling. He uh, he commentates on Formula E. Um, there's all sorts of stuff going on in his life. But he he's always in the past with me. He's always managed to find the time to to do this because he enjoys it. You know, he enjoys communicating it. And a couple of times as well, um, he's he's joined me on on tests in the past. And, and I have to say, it's quite something when Dario turns up to a, a road test, um, especially if he's brought his own hot rod nine eleven along. So I'd like to think that we'll see more of Dario in print, but also we'll see more more of Dario, um, you know, in, in maybe let's see if we can do some videos, maybe maybe some podcasts, maybe there's other things that he can help us with, and yeah, let's see where it goes. And moving on to sort of the next next page or two, there's um, another new columnist, Richard Williams. He, he has written for Motorsport before, um, but uh, to, to talk me through this one. I'm going to come to you, David, in a second because I think this must be. Be in the top five of features that are very difficult to find images for. Um, so, <laughs> when you go. Well, this, uh, I mean, Rich, I've been a huge admirer of Richard. I think we all have here for, for years. I mean, he's, um, uh, as you say, he has written features for motorsport uh, before, but he's probably best known for his um, sports columns in The Guardian and The Observer the chief sports writer for, for many years. And he's um, he knows obviously knows a lot about the history of the sport and he's very passionate about the sport, but he's got great knowledge of, of lots of other things as well. He was, I think he was editor of Melody Maker as well and was instrumental in setting up Ireland Records. So he's a real kind of Renaissance man. And it was felt that you know he would offer a sort of a more kind of holistic take on motorsport, not just a just not just a very a, a narrow field of, of knowledge. He's got a very broad field of knowledge. So we're delighted that he's um, uh, happy to contribute um, his, some columns. And this one is a is a, is a great one. And he came up with the idea of uh, using the 70th anniversary since uh, Enzo. It's what became a car company, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, uh, and sort of ran with it. And uh, and he typically kind of just segues into the the idea that you know Ferrari without romance isn't Ferrari at all, and, um, and then sort of looks at the, the current state of the team. Uh, so it's a really nice sort of um, all-encompassing piece, and beautifully written, as, as, as you'd expect. Yeah, it's um, obviously um, Nigel Roebuck's no, no longer writing for us. He, he moved to another title, moved to Autosport um, last year, and, and one of the things that, that I had to look at very closely when I joined was how we would shape the front of the magazine and the voices and the columnists and um, and and Joe had been in conversation with Richard anyway and it, and, it, and it was obvious that Richard could offer something in, in the magazine um, that we were potentially going to miss. Um, I think Nigel in many ways um, absolutely irreplaceable um, but we had to look at areas where we could satisfy the reader who was enjoying Nigel's copy um, and I think Richard has done a fantastic job and I think at Dario to that and add Matt and to add Mark and I think we've got this fleet of quite extraordinary columnists actually yeah. so um, of course everyone will, will, will miss Nigel and I personally I wish I'd had the chance to um, to work with him but um, hopefully the reader will realise that we've you know we've, we've put a lot of um, effort into trying to, to, to ensure that the front end of the magazine and the columnists are of a suitable standard. Mm -hmm. David, talking about a suitable standard, if, if I was an editor and saw these two images um, as the only images on such a wonderful piece, I'd be asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damon, it's a final warning. Right, so 
This is page all 40, all everyone. All yeah. Page 40, 41, if you would like to open your... Just, just uh, listening, there, there is a close-up of a Ferrari logo and there's a, there's a headshot of Luca de Montezano. Yeah, well, um, this, weirdly enough, trying to find a picture of uh, Enzo Ferrari going out for his first run in 1947, I think it was. There's not many around. Uh, I think it was pre-digital, I think, just at that point. Uh, <laughs> just, just, just. I think it was still a daguerreotype, I think, in that um, Yeah, so it's, it's always a little tricky. Trying to find, uh, especially when you have a columnist that, that delves so deeply into, into a subject and kind of weaves his way around a subject so well, it is hard to kind of touch on a, um, a find a touch point for an image. I grant you, it's an eclectic uh, uh, pair of images to go along with, uh, to, with it, but um, that's, the, that's the whole whole drama of the Ferrari story, for sure. The, uh, the, and the, and what says Ferrari more than the batch? Come on. Yeah, the morning still stands. <laughs> um, it's, moving on from, from this feature here, we kind of move into um, the, the bulk of the, the cover. Um, feature, which is obviously the Alpha story. Um, it's kind of been split up into, I guess, four main parts. There's obviously the story of the of the Alpha, um, which Paul Fernley writes, and then there's a lovely piece by Richard Williams again on the car, the big header. Um, there's the actual track test, and that's Andrew Frankel driving it, um, as we mentioned earlier. And then there's also a lovely cutaway of the anatomy of the Alpha. So, um, just starting with uh, the Alpha story. Um, um, Gordon, you've worked with Paul Fernley for years and years, but in terms of a story like this, um, he's he's the man, isn't he, in terms of that knowledge and being able to pick out the right bits. Paul has absorbed more information uh, through all his years than anyone else I know, and he can lay his mental hands on it as well. <laughs> so uh, he, he could probably have written this story without any references, but I know that he also looked at all the right books and contacted the guru, which is Simon Moore, the man who knows more about HC and 60 alphas than anyone else, I think. So Paul was the right person to do it, and it's full of detail. I know his struggle was to keep it down to the size requested. That's tough, and there's lots of information. Leaving some of it out is very hard. I mean, Paul has Paul never claimed to be a racing historian, and I think he knows more about racing history than any professional racing historian I know. I think that's quite right. It's, it's, really it's a bit daunting to work with. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the Richard Williams, who's the, the, the car that beat Hedda, um, obviously the, the clues in the name. Damon, you, I know you wanted to sort of talk about this, the, the photos that you used. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the, the obviously, uh, going back to what we said a few minutes ago, there's not, not a huge raft of images from that period, obviously. Uh, I think in the uh, in all of the, the picture libraries and all the archives around the world, there's probably only enough pictures to to uh, one to film one or two hands uh, of this event. It's very very few, so they do tend to get used uh, and recycled around. So what we tried to do with the one on the other side, showing the uh, uh, rather stern-looking SS general, um, is to sort of show show Nuvolari in the context of the of that time. Uh, so from a library called Top Photo, who are a, a great sort of. Uh, archivist, uh, archive library, they, uh, with that image that kind of uh, conveys the whole drama between that, that sort of, uh, at, at that time. But the, the action shot is obviously um, 
nice and grainy and lots of uh, lots of drama in that, in that shot with him leaning over. But yeah, there's not a huge amount to choose from. The quality wasn't brilliant, but I think I think it conveys exactly what happened on the day. So you're able to find more images from 1935 than you were from 1947. Uh, <laughs> yes, he's tying himself up in knots. Yeah. <laughs> 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 We've run into the Hitler problem before when we were in history. So <laughs> 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 a few others. Probably 1939. <laughs> We were doing a feature on racing posters, and we selected one which uh, was a, a Nazi poster with an enormous swastika in it, and we could only obtain it from an American photo library. And they sent across an image, and the swastika had disappeared. And it turns out that it's illegal to promote images with a swastika on it in the States, and we had to have, get special permission to have the version with the swastika on it. Oh, so not only have you only found very few photos, you've also actually broken American <laughs> photos. Yeah. Should we move on then? Um, I need to give Joe credit for yeah. the car that beat Hitler. That's a crack. It's probably well, worth just mentioning at this point how, you know, obviously, I think Motorsport, among many magazines a lot, but Motorsport is known for clever headlines. Um, and the number of hours that are spent in the office sometimes coming up with a single headline, well, what is the sort of the record of memory? I think it's a week. Uh, oh, <laughs> certainly. I mean, yeah. I've seen uh, in the old days, spend the whole afternoon mentally banging our heads together trying to work out a line. And they'll come to some, someone at 11 o'clock at night and will then ring up and say, ah, oh, got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they are not the work of the moment. Um, it might be worth just, if you pause there, just to, to maybe tell the listener how the actual story came together because I think it was Nick's probably one of Nick's first meetings that he called when he started and we had this and the story started with uh, a drive of the car and we thought that was great because it was a fantastic car it was going up for auction uh, later on in the month so it'd be our last chance to do it but Nick sort of sat us all down and we all went through and said well and why is this car a potential cover and we talked uh, about uh, its importance the fact that it was one of the first single seaters, uh, the whole dawn of Grand Prix came out of that discussion. Then someone mentioned, oh, that was also the car that won the German Grand Prix in 1935. And so it was like, well, so that was the car, that was the Jesse Owen moment, was it, for, for cars? And that got us everyone talking a little bit more, and then there was talk about doing a cutaway and actually explaining what the car was. And so over a kind of period of half an hour or so during that meeting between everyone here, we all kind of threw in ideas, and that's what built the original drive story into a cover story. It was a, it was a great exercise, and the whole package works really well together. Joe's going to pay rise. I thought I'd throw that one in there. Yeah. What's so great is I can really claim lots of credit for that, seeing as I wasn't even in the office that day. No, um, you were on a beach, weren't you? Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, so, obviously, to the drive, we have talked about Andrew Frankel driving this car at, at Brighton. Um, it's, I think, meant just talking about Andrew, it, it is incredible the number of amazing cars that Andrew gets his bum into. And he's obviously a very trusted um, driver, otherwise, he wouldn't get into the cars he gets into. Also, he's, I always think he's very good at getting across the sense of what it's like to drive one of these. And he's not, a, he's not afraid of admitting that he is afraid mm. or apprehensive or worried about a particular car. So I think a lot of journalists, when they drive something like this, they concentrate too much on what it's like, what the handling's like, or what it's like on the limits. And I just think that's all a bit of rubbish. That's not what yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, obviously, in my previous life, the, the Evo, which was all about you know reviewing performance cars. Um, the amount of times I would read a review of, of a car and I'd been on the launch with the journalist who wrote the review and the journalist is talking about things that just didn't happen and not only didn't happen, they hadn't got the skills to make happen. You know, now I, I, I'll temper it a little bit and say that in the UK we do have the best reviewers, car reviewers. Um, so it, 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 it's certainly not um, a common thing, but um, yes, there are 
there are moments when you wonder that the journalist is trying to express something that would have liked to have happened rather than something that did happen. Um, and Andrew's got this tremendous honesty. Um, and of course, the thing is, he's, he's good, he can drive, he races, he's, he's races some incredibly um, valuable cars and competes very well. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say that he's driven so many cars. It's actually, there's quite a few things that he hasn't driven because he just can't get in them. So when next time Andrew comes in, we'll, we'll, we'll say, come on, we know all the stuff you have driven, but what sort of stuff haven't you driven? And there's a couple of things that he's really, I'm sure he's considered actually like taking a couple of inches out of his feet just to try and drive them because he's, he's, yeah, there's a couple of cars that he simply cannot drive. Oh, I know. Um, but he's loved. So, great story though. Yeah, great great. It's from one sort of era to a totally different one. And moving on to the magazine, we then get to the big Formula E piece. I, you know, I, I know the feelings amongst motorsport readers. Um, and I don't think we're going to get into a debate about Formula E right now, because um, there's, there's two camps, um, each have valid arguments. Joe, how did this feature come about, and why now? Well, it's been bubbling away for a couple of months, and I think it, it really sort of started probably back in uh, tail end of last year. I think it was October when Audi announced it was pulling out of WEC to concentrate on its electric motorsport programme. But prior to that, obviously, we had Jaguar um, getting involved. Mercedes had announced it was going to uh, start uh, uh, getting involved as a major manufacturer. And we just felt that the time, it had reached tipping point, really, and that, that with these manufacturers on board, it really was time for people to take this new series seriously. And the idea, really, was to kind of take a kind of a health check, really, of, of, of the sport and, and look back on how it had started out and, and the fact that it was regarded as a bit of a gimmick three years ago uh, when it started. But that now it had reached critical mass and and really asked the question: Should we start taking Formula E seriously? And um, and Gary Watkins, um, who's brilliant on sports cars, and uh, and is, is very plugged in Formula E, if you'll forgive the pun. Um, knew uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a great it was a great guy to do it. I do apologise. I shall I shall get my. <laughs> On, on that bombshell, um, the, you know, if, if uh, those of you out there thinking Formula E is cutting edge, then actually we've got something even more cutting edge just a few pages later, which is this sort of, uh, it's not the first ever virtual race, there's been hundreds of thousands of virtual races um, via you know, PlayStation video games, um, but this one is probably the most publicised, I would say, and there's this huge million dollar virtual race uh, to sit alongside the Formula E race, and we have done a piece of it by McLaren. Yeah, by Darren Cox, um, who is the former head of Nismo, and he was the architect, I guess is the best word, for the GT Academy, which was the Gamer to Racer programme that was run by PlayStation and, and Nissan to turn a gamer into a racing driver. And uh, they've had phenomenal success. Yamad and Brown, Lucas... Ordinance. Yeah, some really proper racers have, have come out of the, um, the, the programme that, that Darren... Uh, founded a few years back. Um, this I wrestled over this because I, I'm fascinated by the phenomenon of e-racing because it kind of makes us all feel uncomfortable. Mm. Those that love, you know, the, the smell of a racing car and the sound of a V12 and all those other things. This is this is potentially a, a fork in the road um, where racing, as as we know it, changes. And I think that, that interestingly, since we we went to I think with, with this, Audi have announced that they're supporting an e-race team. So, so they pull out of Le Mans, and, and we don't get to see one of the most extraordinary MP1 cars ever made. I mean, if anyone's seen these kind of the models or the pictures of this car that will never race, yeah. but they invest in an e-team, you, you start to think, mm, okay, 
yes, they're saving some money, <laughs> no doubt about it, but wow, they're taking it seriously. So, um, and I'd had a, a, a breakfast with, with Darren a, f- a few weeks ago and we were talking about it and, and my mind was increasingly blown by the scale of this, um, by the scale of e-racing and, and, and Darren uh, runs his own kind of e-racing team. I don't even know what, what, what you do when you run an e-racing team, I honestly don't, I don't know. We'll get him in one day and we'll discuss over, over a podcast. Um, but the scale is amazing. So, so one of the biggest um, websites that, that focuses on e-racing has got 4 million um, units a month. 4 million units, which is off the scale. So it's no wonder that manufacturers are not only taking Formula E seriously, but they're taking <coughs> e-racing seriously. So, so now is the time to, to put it in the mag. And, and I appreciate it might jar um, with, with, with some of our, our readers and because the, the concept of it is, is possibly... Uh, it's the antithesis of um, uh, of what we know and love, but we, we can't ignore it um, because it, it is a phenomenon. Manufacturers are backing it, and, and the, the, the scale is, is extraordinary. So, um, yeah, it's a nice piece, and Darren, I think, did a, did a strong job. So I think I know actually why Audi's gone into e-racing, and that's because, as you'll see in the photos, something Damon points out, is that even though they're racing virtual races, they are wearing fireproof overalls. So Audi can actually use their 2017 fireproof overalls in e-racing. So <laughs> is that the only reason? That is the only reason, apparently. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, it's it's, it's also worth mentioning, there's a little sidebar on there, and the fact that Verstappen, which many people will know, spends hours on on a game and, and practicing up on circuits. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah, just, I mean, but it's also, it's... It's just reflecting the electronic reality sport throughout all of sport. I mean, now Premier League football teams are employing 18, 19 year old kids to represent them at FIFA, FIFA tournaments on, online. So it's, and they're, you know, they're, they're being paid handsome salaries to, to play computer games. Yeah, as, uh, uh, professionally for a football team, and oddly, it's becoming a spectator sport as well. Yeah. you know, so there oh, well, are, that's interesting. You know, it's yeah, not my exactly. but it's yeah. the people are watching it in big numbers. Yeah, and well, Verstappen is likely. Uh, Darren, I think, is prepared to bet that um, Verstappen will never um, equal the number of virtual laps he's um, he's driven in the real world. So he's driven so many virtual laps that he will never he will never in his career drive as many actual laps. So. Um, it's a fascinating area, and obviously, get in touch. We, yeah. we would like yeah, yeah. 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 your emails, your email, and I'll duck. Anyone who does want to get in touch, the email address is editorial at motorsportmagazine.com. Um, so, do, do write into us. We do read everything that comes in, um, and, and we do try and answer them all as well. Which is largely thanks to, to Gordon, um, who, who um, just Get, get through them all. Um, I'm going to uh, keep things moving on because we haven't got too long left. Um, lunch with, uh, this was obviously a very important one, I think, because I haven't heard anything from JJ Leto for years. You know, he's been very quiet. Um, Andrew tracked him down and has done lunch with him. Um, Simon, he, he has been quiet for a long time, hasn't he? And <coughs> this is the first big feature I've seen with him. Yeah, well, obviously he had um, personal problems back in Finland, which uh, led to him being uh, in jail for a, a, a time. Um, but he's he's always been a fairly low key character anyway. I mean, he was he was on Finnish TV as a Formula One an- analyst up until he disappeared from public view. Um, and as he says, as JJ says in the piece now, I mean, he has no mobile phone. Very very few people have his number. He doesn't have an email address other than his wife's. I mean, he's just for a guy who was such a high profile figure for so many years when he was at the top of his game in motor racing. 
he has a remarkably low profile nowadays. It's a, it's a very interesting take, tale. And, and what an extraordinary driver as well. I, mean, yeah. I know that in, in F1, um, you know, he, he was at the early days of Schumacher, and Schumacher overshadowed everyone, didn't matter who yeah. yeah. F1. Um, but he, you know, he had the task of being his teammate for a while, didn't he? And then broke so, his back before he actually had a chance to drive properly. So, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, I mean his, his F1 career kind of crumbled before it really got up to speed. But, mm. I mean, that, I was at Le Mans in 95, and when he was taking 20 or odd seconds a lap out of the other McLarens in the rain in the morning, and just extraordinary. Isn't there, isn't there a little piece in there that said the team manager said... Uh, Dino is raining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some, something along those lines. Set, set the time, and he just yeah. kept hitting it, but he yeah. didn't, didn't understand that he didn't have to hit it in the way as well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a fabulous read, I would say that, but it's a, it's a really good story for someone who's been away from um, the limelight for, for some time. And how, how do you pronounce his name again, Simon? Yuki Yogileto is the full version. Or JJ Leto here from Bedford. Right, <laughs> <laughs> but on that bombshell, so I'm going to come actually straight back to you. <coughs> yeah, we then come on to, to your Camaro piece, the heavy, heavy metal thunder. Um, it's, it's a car that people would have seen at the Goodwood Members meeting, and they would have seen it in period as well. Um, you mean I, I'm old enough to have seen it in period? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Um, uh, it's, I'm going to move on. Uh, <laughs> what, what is the car and what's the story? <clears throat> well, it, it came about. Um, Nick's predecessor, Damien, um, we all love to bits. You'll remember his desk in the office was, if he'd kind of recycled all the content and turned it back into trees, he could have done a new forest a couple of times over. But somewhere in the pile of papers, there was a, an email from Oliver Bryant, son of Graham, very well-known family in historic racing. And he'd mentioned that they were recreating Richard Lloyd's Chevrolet Camaro from 1975 and would we be, have some pictures of the rebuild and would be, be interested in doing a story of it. So I went to chat to them uh, last year at Silverstone. And um, people have funny views about continuation racing cars or replica racing cars. But I don't mind people driving replicas if they don't try and pretend it's something it's not. And the Bryants were very open about it. The Lloyd car was written off in the mid-70s, but they'd found a lot of the original parts that had been in a barn for 30, 40 years just sitting there from the original car. So they bought a shell... They'd seen the members' meeting at Goodwood, seen the Stuart Graham replica, thought we'll do the Richard Lloyd one, bought a shell, found that all these bits of the original Lloyd car still existed, um, had them all cleaned up, assembled the whole thing, and um, off they went to Goodwood. They've had lots of su near success at Goodwood in the past, pole positions, fastest laps, lead races, never actually won one. They went with a Camaro barely prepared and having all sorts of teething problems in testing, hoping they might finish the race. And lo and behold, they won it. So um, the car that was least expected to bring them success at Goodwood brought them the first success. Mm -hmm. And it's um, it's just a, it's just quite a nice thing. And it's a, it's a lovely car to look at. Sounds good. And it was a real shame in the mid-70s when the Camaros were outlawed because they banned anything with more than three litres and took away some of the spectacle from saloon car racing. But it's back. Yeah. Right, and into the sort of the, the final final few bits and pieces. Um, the future of Silverstone. Uh, I'm sure that headline has appeared in motorsport many, many times over the years. But Joe, what, what's, what's different about this one? Why, why are we talking about Silverstone again? Well, it was, uh, I think it was sparked off really um, by a, uh, a letter which was sent by John Grant, uh, the chairman of the British Racing Drivers Club, which essentially runs Silverstone, uh, to members saying that um, the, the, the club was having to seriously consider whether to activate 
break clause in 2019, which would essentially mean uh, that they would break with the current contract they have um, to host uh, Formula One at uh, the British Grand Prix. Um, at the time, this was in December, and at the time, I think that a lot of people sort of dismissed this email um, as sort of sabre rattling, and essentially the British Racing Driver Club. Uh, trying to sort of force the hand of uh, Bernie Eccleston and say, look, you know, you're going to lose the race uh, unless we get a better deal and can make more money from it. And, and it was sort of dismissed, really. But then we had a, a tip-off from a couple of people saying that actually this time um, they really were serious about it and there was a growing body of, uh, sort of a consensus forming, really, that, that the race was just too expensive for Silverstone to host uh, and therefore the chances of uh, losing the British Grand Prix were very, very real. So we started to look into it. Uh, and the more people we spoke to, some of them on the record, some of them off the record, the more it became clear that uh, this really was a, a sort of serious risk. And so we've, we've kind of done the piece, and that's actually where, the, on the cover, we, we also asked the question, does, um, uh, does, does the British Grand Prix have to die in order to save Silverstone? And, that, and that's what it boils down to. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting story to work on and very interesting, hopefully, a very interesting story, story to read. Obviously, the, the, the kind of buyout, Liberty's buyout, has, has changed the dynamic slightly. Um, but I don't think it's changed it that much. I think that um, there's still going to be a battle royal between the new owners of Formula One and uh, uh, Silverstone um, uh, over the, the race fees and, and whether, not just Silverstone, other race circuits as well, can make money out of, uh, out of Formula One. So um, it's certainly a place to be. Yeah, it does, it does. I mean, it's a fabulous story. I mean, Joe did a, did a cracking job and spoke to all the right people. Um, it, and it certainly feels, doesn't it, like we're, we're going to hear a lot more of this over the next few months or so. And, and, and Liberty's plans uh, on the record to certainly expand Formula One in America, well, something's got to give. You know, if there's going to be a, a Miami, a, a California, a New York race, yeah. uh, and there's going to be more races in, in South America, maybe, well, someone's going to give. Yeah. And none of us want it to be Silverstone, Spa, Monza. But the fact that Silverstone themselves, or the BRDCs themselves, are have seems to be considering a contingency um, makes the story very real so um, I think so I think I think there's we haven't heard the last of this and um, uh, you know I think the jury still very much is is out um, on to the sort of the second last feature the piece on Ian Hutchinson that I did um, I could give a little bit of background to this basically I got, a, I got an email from the publishers of Hutchie's new book called Miracle Man which is absolutely worth a read um, asking whether we'd like to interview him, and I said, absolutely, we'd like to do a podcast with him. So there was a lot of toing and froing, and we thought we were doing a podcast with him on a certain day, uh, sort of midday, and then the night before, we got a call to say, no, it's all off, we can't make it. So it was a bit of a surprise, as we were all sitting at our desk at 9.30 in the morning, and um, Hutchie, the multiple other man TT winner, wandered into the office and asked where I was. <laughs> so we, we were slightly taken aback. Um, and uh, we obviously couldn't do the podcast because all the equipment wasn't here and we didn't have the full team. We didn't have Matt, obviously. Um, so Simon and I ended up sitting down with him and chatting through his, his recovery from one of the racing's kind of worst injuries in terms of actually coming back from and winning again. Um, and it was fascinating. It, it would be tough to find a more modest racer out there. And what he has got through to win at the TT again is, is quite extraordinary. And it's 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 a lovely interview because he's I just literally quote him and he's he's great. You know? Yeah, I'd say I mean I know I've met a few bike racers, not all that many, but um, he's one of the most engaging and unassuming interviewees I've encountered in thirty five years in this job. Hmm. So, uh, David, we started with you. I think we should finish with you as well. Okay. <laughs> 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 I, I, 
we'll see you all next month. Except for people to There is a feature that many of many of the regular readers will know called private view. We've obviously taken the best out of them and not being able to find images. <laughs> certain features, but in, in this feature, readers actually send in their own images. So oh, there's really no excuse for they were not to find images. What is the difference between a you were there, a private view? Because they're all readers' photos, aren't they? Absolutely. Well, um, at the beginning of the mag, we have a, have a feature called you were there, which is uh, pretty self-explanatory. But uh, a private view often uh, is, is where the pictures are of a, of a better quality and they show... Um, much more of an event or of a, of a scene or of a time. So it's, it's much more atmospheric, it's much more um, about the drivers and about the cars and about the, the scenery and about a, at a time, in, uh, uh, a place in time, I guess is the best way to put it. Kind of sums up my semo with the bag hanging out, about really, which uh, you don't tend to get too much of these days. There's a, I mean, we, we tend to kind of have a few pages here and there uh, of these, but because it's Can-Am and because it's, uh, the pictures are so wonderful, then absolutely we gave it lots and lots of pages, threw lots of pages at it to make, it, to give, to make the most of it. I, we, we, we all kind of love, love Can-Am. Uh, we had a feature, we did an issue uh, a few months ago, in the last year, so September last year, I think, um, with the Can-Am on the cover, with the McLaren on the front cover, and uh, it sold really well and everyone really loved. So Can-Am endeared, endeared itself to, the, to our readers, I think, over and over again, and why not? Let's indulge. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that's um, a pretty good run through. We're trying to keep it under the hour, and we've literally only got a few seconds left. Um, thank you, everyone, for for helping help, helping us through this. Nick, thank you very much. Joe, Simon, Gordon, and Damon. Um, we will be doing this every month. Um, so do send in questions or anything you want to know about the magazine, because we will happily answer them. Um, the March edition of Motorsport, which we've been talking about, is on sale now, and you can buy it at all major news agents. And you can also buy it on the website, um, www.motorsportmagazine.com. Our podcast will be making a welcome return next week, and we are sitting down with Jody Schechter, the 1979 Formula One world champion, at his house in London. Um, we asked him to come to the office, but he's so tight on time, uh, we're off to visit him um, at, at his home. So that'll be great fun and that'll be online next week. We'll see you all then. Bye bye for now.